Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 214. And today, on the show, we're joined by Whitetail Properties Land Specialist and Habitat Consultant, Jake Elinger, to get an on-the-ground tour of his very own Whitetail Paradise. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. And today in the show, we're talking whitetail habitat and management and smart hunting and small properties and all sorts of interesting topics along those lines with Jake Elinger. And Jake is a fellow Michigan hunter, and he's a whitetail properties land specialist and a whitetail habitat consultant. And a couple of years ago, I had Jake on the show to chat with me about habitat management ideas and a lot of his thoughts on managing small properties. It was a great conversation. I actually remember I was recording it in a really hot basement in the middle of July with no AC. So I think I was, if I remember this day correctly, I think I was soaked in sweat while talking to him and sitting on a cardboard box. But uh, despite that, the conversation was awesome, and I was just left wanting more. There was so much more I wanted to cover with Jake. And in the years since that, Jake actually mentioned to me a couple different times that I was welcome to come actually walk his property to tour it, to learn about what he's done there, and to actually see all the different projects that he's um, that he's completed. So finally, now two years later, that's what we did. Earlier this week, myself and Jake and my buddy Furter went and we walked Jake's 67-acre Michigan piece of whitetail paradise and then afterwards we sat down to discuss everything we saw so man i think that i think that you are really going to enjoy today's episode if you heard that first one with jake i think what you're going to find is that we took things to the next level today uh we 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 cover a lot more of the topics that we touched on last time but we cover them in much greater detail and then we go into a whole lot of new uh, ideas as well so that's the game plan for today. If you haven't heard the previous show, I definitely do recommend going back and listening to that. That's episode number 111. And then here today, we're going to take things um, even further. So looking forward to you guys getting to hear this and uh, getting your feedback. But before we jump into that interview, I do want to take a quick second to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And as I think you've come to learn over the past year or so that we've been working with them, 
The Whitetail Properties land specialists are just a tremendous resource when it comes to land and how to buy it or sell it or hunt it or improve it. And Whitetail Properties also shares a lot of that kind of information over on their YouTube channel. In particular, they have this web series called The Land Beat. And that features a lot of short, helpful videos related to improving your property for wildlife. And since we've got Jake here, a Whitetail Properties land specialist himself, on the show, I thought I'd recommend one of those land beat videos that he is actually featured in. So if you go to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel, you're going to find one of these videos titled The Perfect Hinge Cut. And in that one, Jake demonstrates exactly how to create hinge cuts and use them to improve whitetail habitat. And actually, in our episode that you're about to hear today, we talk a lot about different things he's created on his property using this hinge cutting technique. But we don't go into too much detail as far as how to actually create hinge cuts, what what that means. So I think this land beat video is actually a perfect supplement to the conversation you're going to hear in a few minutes. So... Big thanks again to Whitetail Properties and to everyone listening. Highly recommend checking out that video. It's called The Perfect Hinge Cut. Find it on the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel. Now, let's get to the show. So, we are here with Jake Elinger, And I'm really full of a lot of jealousy because we just walked Jake's property here in Michigan. And, uh... It is such a cool spot. I'm very, very jealous, and I'm very impressed. So uh, so thank you, Jake, for, for being here with us and for letting us take a tour of your well, ground today. You're welcome, Mark, and I truly am humbled because, to me, I've just tried to turn this property into the best hunting I can have in the state, given the, the realistic expectations that I can have here in Michigan. And uh, I just keep learning every year and trying to add what I to my knowledge base and make it just that much better. So I'm happy you were impressed. Yeah. And and I know your jealousy is in a good way. It, yeah, yeah. Because that's just it, it where you want to be. It's exactly right? in a good way. I'm, I'm yeah. very just, it's so cool getting to see these things that we talk about so much, but seeing them actually on the ground and done in such a, a well thought through way, it, it's so neat to see. And then also to see the results that you've had from it. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, it's the most friendly jealousy you could ever ask for. <laughs> um, but good. when you were on the podcast a couple of years ago, we, you, you talked through a lot, a lot of the things that you've done in your property up to that point. We talked through kind of what it was like in the beginning and what, the th- what types of things you did and kind of how to think through managing and improving a small property. And that was really helpful to me even then. I found it very interesting. But I think now having seen it and like really dug into it and seeing it, how, how it's all fleshed out in reality – um, there's a whole new level of, of, uh, of appreciation for what you've done now, um, which has been interesting. And so today what I wanted us to do, um, you know, me and Furter, did, did, you, did you know that's his nickname, Jake? We call I did him. not know that. So, so, <laughs> so yeah, I got to hear the story. So uh, without, without going down too much of a, a random long story short type deal here, but for a long time growing up, uh, his dad would be around for a lot of different things. His dad's name's Frank. And so one day we just thought he looks a lot like his dad. He's going to look like his dad someday. So he's like, he's like a mini Frank. So he's like, he's like a Frank Furter. And then, <laughs> but Josh never knew we were talking about this. Me, me and all my other friends were saying, so like, I'm going to start calling him Furter. So for several years, we just started calling him Furter, but we would never explain to him why we called him Furter. Oh, that's so, cool. so for years, he got more and more upset about it and not knowing why we called him that. And now I've just continued it on to our adult lives. Yep. So that's him. 
and uh, I get it everywhere I go now. And yeah, I no. get people address me in emails, like, <coughs> hey, Furter. Like. His work emails now are addressed to Furter. Which you means add me to that list. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yes, yeah, so I wanted to bring Furter along, though, because, you know, I think, I think your perspective is going to be really interesting, Josh, because you, know, you, you haven't done as much Habitat stuff as, as I've done, not as much as Jake. So I feel like it's, I think I've got kind of like a middle of the road perspective. I've done some, but not nearly as much as Jake. Jake's done a ton. And then you're a little bit newer into that side of things. So I think we've got three different perspectives here. And what I'm hoping to do is to, I do want in a second for you to help let lay the foundation again. So for people that didn't hear that first episode, just so we kind of know what we're talking about as right. far as what this place is like, what you had to start with kind of where we're at. And then I want to like dive deep into a lot of the details of, of how you've improved this property, specific things that me and Josh saw today. Um, talk through some of the examples of different bucks that you've killed recently and how things you've done in the property helped make all that happen. Um, I think there's a lot of like really detail-oriented and like action-oriented things we can cover today that, that having the actual tour helped with. Um, good. You know, you can watch videos, you can read so much, but there's nothing that beats boots on the ground, is there? Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a huge difference. Yeah. So unf- <laughs> unfortunately, we can't get all of our listeners on the ground on your property, but um, but hopefully this is a, the next closest thing they can get. So can you can you just kick it off by taking what we talked about last time in that took about almost two hours, and can you give us like a five-minute version of that as far as like the, right. the, the short version of how you got to where you are now? A little bit with this property yeah, where it started. So in 1981, my wife and A and I purchased this property, 67 and three quarters acres. It's strictly because I was loved hunting, wanted to own some land, got tired of knocking on doors, dealing with all the challenges with that. And I actually, this is where I killed the first white-tailed deer in my life was on this property just by knocking on doors and having permission back in, so cool. when I was in high school. So it's really cool to be able to buy that ground. Um, it was nothing special. It was a mature forest. It had some flooded timber on it. It had about 27 acres of tillable. So, you know, about half of its woods and uh, 20 acres of, of swamp slash wetland, uh, a lot of mallard wood duck heaven, and then some great opportunity with edges and places for food plots and things like that. So I just took off out of the gate back in those days when you hardly read much about habitat, but you did read a few articles about habitat and tried to basically uh, duplicate and emulate what I saw on other properties where I had good deer hunting when I knocked on doors. So I knew I had to have thicker cover, I had to have food sources, I had to have good access. And over the years, I started planting trees, I started doing timber harvest, which then moved into hinge cutting and travel corridors and stand locations. And and as you saw, I've got warm season grasses, multiple food plots, large destination plots, tiny little micro plots, probably pretty darn good access, Uh as you can tell, really good access. That's probably been my hardest struggle over the years. And then I basically set things up to the food to bed pattern. Okay, we know where the food's at, we know where most of these deer are bedding, and try and get that pattern going. Uh And then also set things up for the rut. You know, those those magic two weeks, three weeks out of the year that the bucks are out seeking does, actively working scrapes. And through walking on the ground today, you saw I have a lot of scrapes, a lot of them natural scrapes and a lot of mock scrapes that I continually pull yeah. the limbs down and put them in the right place. And lots of edge and places for bucks and does to spend their time. I, th- I think, 
one thing I'll just jump on here. Something yep. that stood out to me that that didn't that, that can't come through lots of times unless you see it to believe it really is just how like we were talking like one acre of your land feels like five acres of land because it's it's so it's all productive it's it's all great habitat you have so many different features packed into small areas all these different edges bedding transitions there's nothing there's very little ground that isn't serving a purpose on your property so yes. even though it's 67 acres it feels like a very big property i feel like it must hunt like a much bigger property yeah. because of that in in my own eye i believe that the deer probably as far as edge and utilization it's like two to three hundred acres of a standard property yeah there's just a lot of places for them to go and like you say it's very every piece of that property is doing something for the deer mm-hmm. pretty much as other than where i drive my tractor you yep. that's it yep. other than that it's 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 deer habitat yeah the attention to detail about like every little every little thing i mean it's it's remarkable out there you know many... and and when we talked two years ago um I, I i talked a lot about how important i've come to realize early successional growth is mm-hmm. and you got to see it here it is it's middle of may when growth is popping out of the ground we've just had four inches of rain and there's just a little bit of browse in in those areas isn't oh man there? yeah i mean it, you're, you're incredible jam-packed with new growth yeah, and yeah. I mean, great food great cover i mean yeah. tremendous tremendous whitetail habitat you see so many properties so many um areas out here where you just get these wide open woodlands that people think are beautiful right beautiful kind of parkland environment right. but very little value to deer this is the complete opposite. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't see 10 yards in most areas, but it is jam-packed with the kind of stuff the deer want. Yeah, it is. And uh, so so as the years went by and I got good with food plants, good planting trees with a plan, and there was a plan. I knew I wanted to walk down this edge when the wind is from this direction. I knew I wanted to access a bedding area during a certain time of the year. So I strategically planted trees, planted warm season grasses, or a combination of hinge cutting and timber stand improvement to create a screen so I could get into stands. When deer were bedded 60, 70 yards away, they wouldn't get up and move. Mm-hmm. And, and it just seemed like a daunting task that nobody could do, but I've pulled it off enough to know I'm doing it. Okay. Right. And you saw it, and, and once you get there, you realize, yeah, Jake can get in here on November 8th and go yeah. right past deer that are bedded and get in a stand and wait for them to get up and walk by. And I, I can see how... <laughs> It, the one thing I would have thought, if I hadn't known about your access route, I would have thought, how the heck do you hunt this? Because there is so much great habitat, so much bedding. I mean, you could there could be deer almost anywhere in some cases if you didn't really understand it. Right. And um, but I can see that you have, you know, you've got well thought out routes. You, certain times you can hunt it, certain times you can't hunt it. Yep. Um, and you'll probably agree. Maybe this will help for the listener. Um, my habitat works in level of preference. So during the seeking phase, it's all about where are those does bedded? Where are those bucks utilizing areas of security? So those are the more difficult places for me to get to, Mm -hmm. but the most rewarding from a hunting standpoint. When it comes to food and early season, a doe harvest or late season, those food plots are easier to access for that exact reason. I can get in there, not really make an impact to the bedding areas, slip out after dark, not really bother the deer. Yep. And so it's all working pretty good. It took a long time. You know, it's not like any of this happens overnight. 
but uh, yeah. it's just been a heck of a learning curve. So, so how many years have you been working on this property? Um, since 1982. Wow. Yeah, that's a, it's a long haul. And real serious the last 20 plus years. Has there been any one thing that you could point to that was like a light switch moment? Like once I started doing X, I noticed like a, a, a totally new level of success. Is there anything you could point to that was like um, your biggest aha? Yeah, and, and I would this was a two-stage. When I started realizing how many trees you had to remove out of the canopy to get early successional growth, to carry browse through the winter to hold more deer, more bucks, more does mm-hmm. through a season, that was a big aha moment because I don't think you saw the areas. There's yeah. not many trees standing. Yeah, so, so, so can you describe how, how many trees you got to take out? Like, are we talking um, 50%, 20%, oh, we're talking, 70%? We're uh, talking 85 to 90% 85%. of the standing trees go down in particular bedding areas. Now, that's not the entire woods. You know, these are, you saw them from three-quarter to two-acre areas. Mm-hmm. Then the second aha moment was I was able to get the browse and get deer to utilize those areas, but I found that, that there was a bit of a, it would fill to a certain point and I wouldn't hold any more deer. So six, eight years this ago, I started cutting openings inside of these hinge cuttings because I really started observing doe groups, learning more about doe groups, really from observation and stands looking into these bedding areas. And anywhere there was an opening, these doe groups would bed, you know, with the oldest, smartest matriarch does laying directly with the wind in their favor and then all the younger deer looking at them and watching them, taking their cues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and, and just, again, you just learn more, you read more. You know, I've been a, a member of QDMA for 20 years now. And so there's just a lot of information that always points to that direction, that mm-hmm. the, doe is, the doe is really the queen of the forest from day one. How yeah. do you manage bucks? Manage your old does, right? So I have found that these openings, and you guys got to see these openings, probably got me more mature bucks per square acre than anything I've ever done. Can you can you uh, describe what you mean by that? So, a describe like your how why you're hinge cutting, and then what are these additional okay. openings you're creating so, to do that? So I'm I'm notching and dropping really large trees first. These are, these are and these can be trees of all kinds of species. They can be oaks, hickories, maples, a variety of everything. And I'm trying to to get the canopy opened up, and then I'm hinging all the smaller trees in that uh, 12 to 16 inch in diameter and less. And I'm hinging them high to go over the top of these larger trees, again, to let in a lot of sunlight to grow lots of early succession. But through that process, the deer have to feel free to move around. And so I'm cutting a network of trail systems with openings, say the size of this room, we're in a 20 by 20 room. There's a lot of openings inside of the hinge cuts that are 20 by 20, 20 by 30, with maybe three or four different three foot wide openings allowing deer to come in from the right from the left from the north from the south so they can mingle inside so when they're laying down there's a lot of fringe cover to Mm -hmm. their right and to their left but right around them with the does there is not much cover other than the early succession in the edges and to top it off i i now go into those areas in late july and early august and spray the vegetation with a non-selective herbicide and overseed it with a 60% chicory, 40% clover. You saw those areas. Yeah. I'm, I'm providing a lot of green in addition to all the oaks and maples and hickories that are coming up anyways. So that during that t- 
time of the year that I'm really trying to hunt that buck. I now have an abundant food source in a bedding area. I found that really interesting. I'd never, I'd never seen that done before. It, did, it seems like, based on what I'm seeing, you're able to eliminate enough competition to get some food in there, some, you know, especially a palatable food, but you're still maintaining plenty of successional growth on the edges all oh, around. Right. So you yeah. still have lots of great yeah. cover, right? Yeah. So if you were to try and do that in an area with high deer density or maybe just one little small half-acre hinge-cut timber stand improvement area, you probably would not have much success because you have to overwhelm the deer with more growth than they can keep up with. You, you did not see 15% of my bedding covers today. Yeah, that blows my mind. <laughs> so, but what you saw is realize that every place that's, hey, across the water peninsula, here's another one looks yep. just like this. So there is so much growth coming up right now at this rapid time. The deer can't keep up with it. Yeah. So that allows that clover and chicory to germinate and grow in there. And they really could care less because there's so much food everywhere. So fast forward to the first week of November, we've had two or three hard frost. Uh, a lot of people call it brown down. Things are turning brown. Uh, leaves are falling off. Now there's all this abundant green in their bedding area they haven't paid a whole lot of attention to. It's there, they're aware of it, but now it's primo because it's green and it's right, and it's where they want to be because they're getting tired of being pushed by the bucks. They're seeking cover. Yeah. And so, you know, it took a lot of years to put that whole picture together. But it works really good for me, and it is very strategic. I mean, I, I, I focus the best food and the best bedding covers that I can actively access for hunting during the rut. Does, yeah, does that so make sense? Yes, yeah, so we're, we're calling these like your sweetened bedding areas. Yeah. So, yep. so you're, you're, you've got, let's say you've got 10 bedding areas. I'm not sure how many you actually might have if you separate them out. But if there's 10 bedding areas, it seemed like the two or three that were the closest to where you could hunt would be the ones you would sweeten. That's Is that true. accurate? Yep. Is there any other thought that's going into that? No, that that's really it. You yeah. know, not only, and you can see I, the detail work goes in there too. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time providing areas for deer to move, to, to be easily go right, left, uh, move in all directions, security. Uh, there's lots of food. And you also saw all the scrapes, the mock oh, yeah. scrapes that I put in around those areas to keep those bucks really busy. So do, the, do those two things increase as you get your higher priority? So are, are there increased detail as far as the trails cut through the bedding areas and the openings cut? Do you have more of those in your sweetened yes. higher priority bedding yeah. areas versus the farther ones? Yeah. Okay. Although I always have trails because those deer do not want to get blocked in, mm-hmm. you know, because there's coyotes and there's other things besides people and there's competing deer that they're trying to get away from. But I, I just get a lot more, a lot more strategic in those deer movement openings yep. because as you saw, I like them within bow range of my tree stands. Yeah. Yeah. You get some good looking <laughs> setups there. You saw that Josh, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Yep. yep. When you're making your your trails or your openings in there, are you giving any? Is there any um, rhyme to the reason, or reason to the rhyme, or however that saying goes? Uh, as far as where you're making the trails heading to, like, do you want to make sure that there's trails heading in the direction you want the deer to go, or do you just kind of cut wherever the natural openings yep. are easiest to make, and <clears throat> you don't need to think through too much when it comes to that? I think, I, th- I think those deer are going to travel wherever you give them room to travel. Because once you're tipping down trees, you're changing their entire world. You know, mm-hmm. this used to be a park effect. That last place we went into, the spot that I killed Brutus this year, two years ago, you could see 150 yards right through that. And wow. yeah. when I was done after four to five hours, it was a mess. I mean, it, it was just a disaster zone. 
And then I strategically go in there for weekend after weekend with a chainsaw and start cutting openings and, you know, heavy snow and ice storms and things happen and things settle and trees move. And eventually you figure out, okay, the deer really like this area, so I'm going to really define this one. And, you know, you know, from hunting it a year ago from an observation stand, I saw places does were trying to move. And you could tell they got blocked off. They went into an area. They wanted to go to the east. They couldn't. So I go in there and I cut a hole for them. And you saw the paths, how they use them. Yeah. Now there's like and, cow uh, paths. Through yeah. Some yeah. Oh, they really have. They really they? use them. Yep. <clears throat> what, what stood out to you, Josh, on this topic? Because we were looking, you know, we started basically the way our kind of property tour started is, is, we, is we walked through the kind of front of Jake's property and went through a food plot that's along the edge of this warm season grass. You get a bunch of blue stem and switchgrass, right? Yep. Yep. And then we entered the timber, and right inside that timber, right away, we got to some of these hinge-cut bedding areas, maybe within 30, 20 to 40 yards of yep. the edge of that food, right? Yep. Um, and then the beginning of these hinge cuts and these significant bedding area regions. Um, what were you thinking when you were, we were looking at all that, Josh? It's cool to see how much difference you can make with just a little time behind a chainsaw i mean that's all i mean that's all you're really using right it's a right. chainsaw i mean and that's you all made so used. much of a difference in that area and how much canopy you open by just a little bit of time behind a chainsaw um that's something that a lot of people can do it, it is the uh deer manager's best friend is that chainsaw yep. and doesn't cost a lot of money it doesn't, doesn't cost I mean, a lot of money understand the safety of it but um otherwise you don't need a tractor. You don't need big money. Nope. You don't need, you know, you don't need a bobcat and a big, huge front end loader. You can do it all with a small chainsaw yep. and just some time. Yeah. Some sweat equity. Yep. yep. So, and the other thing that was really cool um, that I had never thought about was how you were cutting those saplings, oh, yeah. maybe three or four or five feet up. Oh, yeah. And you were getting those sprouts right at deer level. Right at deer level. Yeah. yeah. Talk yeah. about Instead that. Just kind of cutting them down. Yeah. That was very so, interesting. So, when I'm in there hinge cutting and, and, uh, whether you're doing a timber stand improvement and hinge cut, you're going to have succession, and these are trees three quarters to an inch and a half in diameter, and they're going to be in there. And you're not hinge cutting those; you're working around those. And now, so now you've created openings; they're there. So I try to cut them about armpit high, I'd say, right about that, you know, about armpit high. I just cut them off instead of cutting them at the ground, and, you, and they're going to sucker. They're going to send up new shoots, new suckers, and that right, that is at exactly at a deer's level. Right. So it's just kind of, you know, it's like, why not put the ice cream right on a plate, you know? Yeah. I think what you, I mean, we've mentioned numerous different examples of how you just sweeten the pot on these yeah. bedding areas. Yeah. You've got the the, the, the the open canopy, then you've got the openings, then you've got the, the corridors, then you've got the overseeded food, now you've got these saplings, new sprouts. I mean, it seems like you're really providing primo, primo habitat in the spots you really, really want them. Yeah. So it seems like you can really focus where it's most likely that the majority of deer or the deer that you want to be there will be. Yeah, um, that, that, that truly is it, you know. What about spacing? One of the things I was curious about, and I think based on what I saw, well, I guess I'll let you just answer, but do you try to space bedding areas in a certain way or do you, do you want them to be a connected stretch of bedding that never ends? You know, or what are your thoughts on all it, that? It's kind of topography property specific so the first place we walked into was actually where i started 20 30 years ago hinge cutting and there's a big a natural peninsula there we eventually mm -hmm. got to that peninsula which had natural deer bedding to start with even though it was pretty poor habitat so i decided to take that entire peninsula and work towards the food plots and create a lot of 
room for deer to bed. There's, I don't know how many deer could bed in there. It's a big area. It's wow. probably four and a half, five acres of hinge cutting at this point. With, and, you, and you did see, I had a very major east-west travel corridor that went right down through the middle of it. And then all these spurs of trails that go right or left yeah. off of that, the deer could enter and exit different hinge-cut areas. Yeah. So f- my thought there was I wanted to load a whole bunch of does in there and provide a, one major travel corridor bucks could cruise through. And you saw I had a stand down on the east end of it, and I've got a stand on the west end of it. Depending on wind and other conditions, I now have stands I can pretty easily get into in the rut. And if the wind condition's right and it's the right time of the year, I should have one of my shooters come by. Yeah. That's the goal. Yeah, yeah. And uh, most of the time it works that way. So uh, I'm yeah, pretty I, happy with that. Yeah, I can, <laughs> I can see why you'd be happy. I mean, there were so many examples while walking around where just – you're just thinking in your head, wow, this lays out just perfect. For this given wind direction at that time of year, oh, yeah, I could see exactly they'd be coming right through here. And... Um, probably one thing we, we might want to talk a little bit is how that all tied into the location of those destination food plots. Yeah, let's talk about that. So I have destination food plots to the south of these bedding areas and to the west of those bedding areas. So can we, can we, can we let's try to paint a picture real quick. Okay. Would you say, let's imagine like a, a rectangle that we'll say is your cover. Yeah. And then on the south border of that rectangle is a destination food plot, right? Yes. On the west angle or west side of that rectangle, rectangle is another. Is another. Yep. And then the whole rectangle then is hinge cuts and these yep. corridors and all that stuff. Okay. So now continue. That, make, that makes good sense. So the, the, way, the reason I set that up is a lot of people focus on what they call predominant wind. And so in this part of southern Michigan, most people are going to talk south or southwest. Well, that's under mild conditions. That's not when I get good buck movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they move. I'm not going to say they don't. There's been some great deer killed during those conditions. But I'm really a cold front, post-cold front hunter. So you're talking about a northwest wind. And a lot of times in the fall, I don't know why, but a lot of times in the fall, we start getting southeast and easterly winds. So I'm trying to move those deer, and most deer like to move nose, nose into some angle, crosswind. So if the wind is from the south, and say it is mild weather, then they're going to move out of that rectangle of cover to the bottom of the page heading to those food plots. So I'm, I'm going to strategically get myself in between there if yep. it's the rut. If the wind is from the west or the northwest, then they're going to start going to the left-hand side of that triangle or rectangle and the same thing i'm just trying to put myself along the edges of those bedding areas to ambush one of those cruising bucks that's that's my goal if i'm trying to kill does in the early season i'm a lot closer to the food but i'm still utilizing that same movement pattern yep now we were talking about something when we were walking around looking at all these bedding areas and we were talking about how you must just be able to pack so many does into these bedding areas. i mean there's so much great habitat so many deer could be in there and you've got plenty of food, but then we start talking about, you know, is there a risk to having too many does? Like some, some people we talk to talk about the risk of having like a doe factory. Yeah. You said that you had some different perspectives on that. I, you know, I lose my deer once my food is all consumed. So the first thing they're going to do when they eat everything that is in my destination food plots is they're going to go to woody browse because that's very important food, especially at that stress time of the year. So I, you can see I'm 
really well covered with woody browse, but they do like large destination food mm-hmm. plots to go to. So throughout the summer, I have a local herd, probably 25, 30 some deer utilizing this property at this time of the year. We get uh, the rut in later, and the herd doubles, sometimes triples, because of gun season and pressure. But they do disperse and get out of here come late February, middle of March, when the food pretty much goes away. So it seems like right about antler drop, all the bucks leave. <laughs> right. Bummer for your shed hunting. Bummer, bummer for shed hunting. Um, but, you know, anybody who hunts, especially, we, let's add the Michigan element. Okay, Michigan is a tough state for the length of season, lots of different reasons. So mature bucks are not near as common as they are, say, Illinois, Iowa, those, those states, Missouri. So I like having a lot of does. And I like knowing where those does are bedded because that one shooter or two shooter bucks I'm getting on camera becomes a lot more predictable because his whole focus is about getting a date. So for me, it works to my advantage in success. Um, hope that answered that yeah, question. No, yeah. no, it did. Um, you were you were telling us a few stories while we we're out there of bucks that you recently killed. That I think we're doing just what you were talking about there. Yeah. Would you say that Brutus was an example of that? Yeah, he was a perfect example of it. So that yep. was this past year. Yep. Could you tell us about that hunt, that deer, and then what aspects of your habitat work and the property made that all come together? Okay. Um, this deer uh, had a very typical rack. He didn't have any, any special markings, but I started paying attention to him when he was a three-and-a-half-year-old. And at that point, so that would have been in 2016. And at 2016, I had finally got to that point where if they're not four and a half, I'm not killing them. And he just had a really cool, you know, low 130s type rack. He actually was a nine point in in 2016. And uh, so through 2017, through summer and spring, I started getting pictures. I actually saw him turkey hunting. And he had big cans on his head, and he just had a body. And I should show you the picture of his body. But he looked like he was on steroids. He really did. So I nicknamed him Brutus and started getting velvet pictures of him. And so uh, I knew that this deer was spending quite a bit of time here. And in the summer, it's so random. Yeah, they're going to be in, in particular food plots quite often. But as far as how he's getting to, you know, from one point to the other, it, it's, it really is random, especially on this property. So I... I had this great bedding area that that you had been in, and it just had all, has all the all the food. It has all the openings for does. It's capable of holding probably twenty five to thirty does in a two acre area. And I had cut a, a what I call a barrier hinge cut about sixty yards long to the west of that bedding area, and it stopped about forty yards from that bedding area. And at the very end of that barrier was a triple oak tree that I hung a stand in. And when you say barrier hinge cut, what do you it's, mean by well, that? It's cut very low to the ground, so low that deer cannot bed in it, and it's more of like a fence. Imagine a bunch of trees cut all parallel to each other, laying across to each other so that deer cannot physically go yeah. through it. Or at least so, being lazy, they don't want to. Right. Being the lazy deer they are, they normally go around it. Yep. So I left this gap, about a 35 to 40-yard gap, from the end of that hinge cutting to that really good doe bedding area. And there's also a bunch of scrape limbs that I have all tied in very close there. And my whole goal about hunting that area was waiting for the perfect time of the year. Mm-hmm. Because now I'm talking about a four-and-a-half-year-old Michigan buck, which is really an extremely tough animal to hunt. So I run a, 
I run a couple of game cameras in strategic scrapes that I can drive an electric cart to and pull the cart out of and get out and get data and not leave any scent on scrapes I would never hunt over. And I started getting data on that deer all through the month of October, but it was all nighttime data. And as we got more and more into November, I started getting, he was now 20 minutes till daylight or 10 minutes after dark. And the Saturday before November 8th, I pulled the cards and I had two days of him in daylight. So I said, cool, Brutus is moving during daylight. He's starting to move around. And so I was, I waited for a northwest wind day after cold front, high pressure day. So I look at the 10-day forecast on weather underground and I see that the upcoming Wednesday, I have just that. A 20-degree temperature drop, high pressure, northwest wind. It happens to be November 8th. There isn't a better day. Yeah. The, you know, the, it's funny. November 7 is when I got my... My my one opportunity at Holyfield. See it, and I didn't. I was looking at my phone, and I wasn't able to shot him. <laughs> but you had an opportunity. He was there, yeah. so it would have been that day the cold front I think was hitting, and you were hunting yeah. the day after that. Yep. So, so started around. No, no, and, and I'll, what I'll do is a lot of people talk about cold fronts, and cold fronts are great as they approach, and you're going to get a lot of your younger deer, and that's going to be your does and bucks and uh, one and a half and two and a half year old bucks. But when you start getting three and a half and older. And especially in a high-pressure state like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, I think those older bucks just wait out the, the nasty weather, the gusty. Usually there's rain, yeah. snow, a little bit of everything mixed in with it. And they like that following day, getting up and covering ground. Their precipitation is over, so they're going to open up and refresh in all of their scrapes, too. So I knew the date and the conditions were right. There was one thing that I was looking for, and as I so I go to U.S. Prime Times for moon position. It, it was about four or five days after the full moon. I really don't care about the phase it was in, but on that day, the, there was a moon minor, which means the moon was going to set at about 11:30 that day. And I actually told my wife the night before. I said, "I'm getting up early. I'm going to go kill Brutus," and I said, "I'm going to hunt till two o'clock," because I said we've got a moon minor right around noon. And the coolest thing was, I, I, you saw the stand. I headed into that stand, got into that stand, and right 10 minutes after daylight, I had one year and a half old buck behind a young doe, acting a bit bucky, but not, he, re, he was not chasing. He was just following her. And, you know, they, they moved out, and just like I expected, there was zero deer movement. I saw some turkeys and some squirrels, and I think I saw one coyote come through, but there was very little deer movement. A couple does here and there off in the edge stand up in the hinge cut that I was watching. Yeah. And as it got closer to that time, and I was very aware of the time that it was going to be, it was. I remember looking, because I always have a watch on my backpack just to keep track. It was 20 minutes to 11, and here comes a buck. And then right after that, boy, here's two does, and here's some fawns, here's another buck. And for 20 minutes, I, the only word I can use is pandemonium. Out in that stand, I had 15, 20 deer, seven antlered bucks, three bucks, three and a half and older, moving around in front of me, just giving me a show in my lifetime. Wow. There was, you saw where those scrapes were. There were bucks hitting scrapes. There were bucks rubbing. There was a buck in that hinge cut, snort wheezing. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, my, my real cool 10 point, I call Mr. Perfect. He was out there. And the coolest thing was, as it got closer to 11, and I was not watching the clock then, I watched, I had a couple, three of the bucks off to my, be to my more, a little bit south and a little east, and I noticed them all turn their heads and look to the west. And at that, my 
moment, I heard something coming. I turned my head. Here comes Brutus. And he, and like all mature bucks, he's not fooling around. He's not walking slow. It's, it's not a, it's not a trot, but it's just short of a trot. You've seen that, how they come through the woods at that time of the mm-hmm. year. And I had just enough time to, to get my bow, and he was in the shooting lane, and I grunted, and he stopped, and I made a perfect double lung shot, and in 15 seconds, he was on the ground dead. So what do you think he was doing? Like, why was he coming from where he was coming and heading so, where he was headed? So I had a pretty good idea where he was betting, and I showed you guys later yep. the hinge cut. So about 100 yards from there is a hinge cut on a hill that bucks typically use. So my goal when I went in there that morning was if he's where I think he is, he'll be in that hinge cut. He'll wait till just before that moon minor, and he'll start cruising for does. So he was trying to get south of that bedding area. With a northwest wind, he's trying to get on the downwind side of that bedding area to cross any trail and smell any does that are in estrus. And that really is his goal. Yeah. And I just cut him off just before he got there. Yeah. Perfect, perfect placement. <laughs> so, and then with that with that that barrier hinge cut too, it narrows down the area that he might go through. It did. The perfect spot between the bedding areas. I mean, it was a beautiful, beautiful setup. It's a really good set. Yeah. And, and and that was two years in the making. I had to relocate that stand a couple of times, but that was my first time in this year. So there's a handful of things within that I'd like to pick apart even more. But you talked about the moon miner. And interestingly, a few months before this hunt, I actually called you to, to yep. get some insight for an article <clears throat> I was writing. And you talked about this, your perspective on the moon, because there's so many different theories about the moon. Some studies them. show that there's nothing to the moon. Some people swear by the moon. Some people swear by moon position. Some people swear by moon phase. Some people swear by what color the moon is and what, what oh, time yeah. the, the stars yep. are lined up. But <laughs> what what's your take on the moon? Because um, you mentioned the moon miner but can you yeah. kind of elaborate in so, general what matters how do you look at it so for me uh just so that everybody can understand it, it's it's position in the moon and there's the moon is closest to the earth and farthest from the earth at two times during the day and so when the moon is directly overhead or directly under underneath that's called a major that's and that's closest to the earth typically and then when it's on the horizon, the moon is either rising or setting. It's also fairly close to the Earth. So it's believed to be a gravitational pull. There may be more to it than that. Only time I pay attention to it is when it's at 11, 11.30, when it's a non-peak movement period. You know, deer are precuspial animals. They move that first hour and a half of daylight, that last hour and a half of daylight. So if you have a peak moon position during that time, it's not going to make a big difference anyway. But it's really going to make a big difference in an odd time of the day when deer normally aren't moving. Imagine how many hunters went out on November 8th. There was zero deer moving. They, they sat till 10, 10.30 and said, well, heck with that, I'm going back getting some coffee. And it was just getting good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so it's not the end all. But, I, but when you have all the other factors, I've done it enough to see it work. So, so yeah, so this is something we ask a lot of people, and I'm always endlessly fascinated by it, but how would you rank then all these different factors that might increase or decrease deer movement? Because you talked about timing yeah. being really important. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned a bunch, but can you just kind of prioritize them so, for me? time of year, first 10 days of November, definitely a huge factor, okay, because where we're at in this part of Michigan, that is pretty much the seeking phase and the pre-rut. So that's, a, so that's number one, timing. And then I'm going to go with weather conditions. It was post-cold front, a gusty 5 to 8 mile an hour northwest wind. And it was also high pressure. Uh, 
I'm not the only guy that talks about high pressure. A lot of guys focus mm-hmm. on high pressure. I think, I think high pressure gets a lot of deer up and moving. They don't, they don't know why, but it gets them moving. So I'd rank that. I'd rank those three conditions first, and then the fourth one being moon position. So we talked about how you sweeten your bedding areas. Would you look at the moon as a kind of a sweetener to these other things? You want yeah. all these other factors, and that's going to tell you, yeah, this yeah. is going to be good. Then if also this moon factor lines up and it tells me that you might want to pay a little extra attention to this point of the day, yep. that kind of just gives you a little bit more reason to be. Yeah, rather than going back to get coffee at 10, yeah. stay till afternoon. Yep. Ride through that moon fa- uh, factor position, not phase, and just see what it gets you. Because, yep. you, you know, I, I think in a, if you did that 10 years in a row, always played that, you'd probably find at six of those years it was good. Some years, everything's right. Sure. You know, I mean, you, you can have the, the sweetened bedding, the right day, the right time of the year, the right weather conditions. You just don't see that shooter. There's a lot of things that happened we don't know about. Yeah. He goes left, right. He got in a fight with a buck the night before, and he's licking his wound somewhere. You don't know what's going on. But all things being equal, I think we stand a better chance. You know how hard it is, Mark. Right. It seems like we have to line everything up, don't we? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and if I can add one thing. I've learned in the last 10 years to be very disciplined and just stay the heck out of my good areas until it's right. Yeah. I think that contributes huge. Okay. A fresh stand. No one will tell you any differently. First time in, fresh stand is the best opportunity you'll ever have to kill a mature buck. So so on that point, we talked about it a lot out there when we were walking. Before you killed Brutus, how many times had you been in hunting that season? So I know you were looking for just that perfect... For, as far as a rut, that was my third rut hunt. Of the whole property? Of the whole yeah. property. And I did one, first I, time on that stand? First time in that yep. stand. Yep. I, I hunted um, just t- November 3rd, I hunted with a decoy. I had a very successful hunt. Could have killed a really neat deer, but he was just too young. But everything was perfect. And that happened to be a, a cold, cold front as well. It was an evening hunt. It was easy to get in. Just had fun. Got the greatest video and just learned so much about that deer. And then uh, November 7th, I, w- I told you about my real hard-to-get-to stand on the opposite side of the water. Yeah, yeah. Went in there and hunted till afternoon and never had a shooter. Hmm. Was kind of dead. But the moon position was not good. Interesting. Okay. And there could have been other factors there, too. And yep. it, but it was not post-cold front. The cold front rolled in on... The evening of November seventh, yeah, and it was so. It was the morning of November eighth. Was post cold front that could have something to do with it too. But that was three separate hunts. It was the right time of the year, and then finally it all yep. pulled together. And that was a great day because I, I had probably ten minutes before I passed him. I passed a hundred and twenty-five inch eight point. That's a hard pass in Michigan. But, uh, I got good video of him, and he's easy eighteen inside. Wow, nice gonna be a great one this year yeah <laughs> based on what i'm hearing it sounds like you've got some very promising things to look yeah. forward to this year yeah. Yeah. between I'm hoping yeah. between that deer and then the mr yeah. perfect buck yeah. you were talking about yeah so uh, uh you know it's like with everything uh i don't care what you do in life the harder you work the luckier you get that's okay? that is true so i do work hard on my habitat i work i work very hard in the habitat uh getting the trail systems right getting my stands in the right location and then uh one thing we haven't touched on, but I know we talked about this two years ago, and it's a it segues perfect. I work really hard on my scent control. Yeah, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that yeah. too. I know we talked a little bit, yeah. but give us a refresher on that because again, all we've talked about how yeah. important timing is, yeah. and 
timing is important because you're trying to minimize your pressure on deer until the right, right times. And until the right time. by being really smart about scent control, you're so, also minimizing that pressure. So most people think, oh, yeah, I'm good at scent control. I take a shower and I buy this, I buy the spray and I spray myself and I wear a, a carbon suit. So I'm pretty good at my scent control. And for most people, that is pretty good. But mm-hmm. I go much farther than that. I use zeolite to cover my body. Uh, I've walked you through, I mean, the moment I get out of my shower, I dry with a towel that is not in the family laundry. It gets, it gets washed in a separate washer. Every layer I wear gets covered with 100% zeolite powder. All of my clothing is exposed in an ozone room, yep. exposed to ozone. And as I layer up in the bottoms of my boots, are in carbon-activated totes, constantly washed. And I think that's probably the, the biggest key is the bottom of your boots, the bottom and the edges of your boots. So these boots that I wear hunting never get in a truck, never go to a restaurant or gas station. They never touch pavement. They only sit in a tote or they go hunting. They get washed after every hunt, get completely retreated, dried, covered in zeolite. Um, I'm, I'm a bit of, I leave white tracks going across my yard <laughs> when I walk out of my walkout basement. I mean, you can see it in the grass, and that's, that's the zeolite stuck on the bottom of wow. my boots. But I think it, it gets me in, because you saw where I hunt. Deer are going to cross my path. Yeah. There's no yeah. way it can't happen. So a lot of these does, young bucks, middle-aged bucks, cross it, and they just have no clue I was there. And that's all I want to do. I can't, if they're downwind of me, they're going to smell me. But I I honestly believe they think I'm 100 yards away and I'm not 20 yards away. That's all I want. Yeah. And that that can sometimes make all the difference in the world. And I I think to, to segue a little bit as to why it's so important, along with how often we hunt, as great a property as it is, is how many pictures you're getting of Holyfield. If we go in and hunt and we aren't successful, and we go again and we're not successful, mm-hmm. and we go again and we're not successful, at night when we're sleeping, every deer in that area is learning about yeah. whoever's hunting that deer. So it's an accumulated effect. The harder we hunt them, the harder they are to kill. That's okay. the truth. I'm just... <laughs> I'm convinced, okay? And and in 2016, I killed a a five-and-a-half-year-old buck in a very similar situation, trying to get downwind of a big doe bedding area, first time in. Was this righty? That was righty. Super cool deer. This is righty right here. That's cool. And, you know, he never was going to grow much, but he was the toughest critter you ever saw. So walk us through that scenario then, too, because I feel like I always find that these specific examples are the most helpful for me, like hearing exactly why you did what you did, how it worked. what happened? The coolest thing was righty was all the history I had for this deer. From from the time he was a year and a half old, he was fighting. Every time I saw him, wow. he was fighting. And he was always breaking all of his antlers off. Even as a year and a half, he had one antler, and he was a four-point, and he, all he had was one tine on it. You know, and he, he was out there all puffed up, just just fighting everybody. And I just thought he was you know just an angry little year and a half. Uh-huh. When, he got, when he got to be two and a half, and that's his two and a half shed right there. Oh, that's he awesome. Grew five, he grew five on the right, and he just had a fork with some little stickers on his left. And I wasn't sure what was wrong with him, but I just thought he was a pretty cool deer. But it was the same thing. If I got any pictures, he was fighting. I did, because he was two and a half, I saw him a couple of times. Got some video, got some pictures. So let him get to three and a half. And at that point, I'd done enough research with other deer biologists. And I talked to, I actually talked to Kip Adams and uh, Matt. Uh, Ross about this deer and they said yeah it's probably a, a pedicle injury and that that type of thing 
And so I was willing to see what would happen. So I let him go to four and a half. I passed him once at, at three and a half with a, with a muzzleloader because I had killed that 10 point the year before, which mm-hmm. was a really good afternoon hunt. Yeah. So I've, I've gotten pretty good at killing nice mature deer on this farm. So I passed Righty because I'd already killed a pretty decent 10 point. So now he moves into four and a half. And as a four and a half year old, you would never get a picture of this deer in velvet with another buck. If you got a picture of him, he was always alone. And the only time you saw him with another deer was during the seeking and chasing phase. He was fighting. So he was a pretty cool old deer. And so I I wrote an article after I killed him in the quality whitetails called Righty the Fighter just because of who he was, and and he fought a lot. But I got enough data on that deer by the time he was four and a half to basically focus on an area he was spending time and, and make sure I hunt that. During that four or five days, I got daylight pictures of him the year before so that's what i did i looked back on the calendar reviewed the photos saw the days those days were november 11th through november 15th of the prior year so we had november 12th of 2016 we had post cold front high pressure moon major at 8 30 that morning northwest wind so you saw the stand I got into because I got more pictures of him in that area than okay. anywhere. I thought he's probably cruising through here trying to get into that corridor yep. and get downwind of those does. So that was a morning hunt. That was the first deer through that morning. Wow. I shot him at 20 after 8. <laughs> uh, can you describe how that stand layout was in relation to the habitat? Because this was a different spot than the Brutus yep. spot. I think you called this the refrigerator stand? I call it the refrigerator <laughs> stand because there is an old refrigerator about 40 yards away from there that's been there since I was just a teenager. Uh, so the previous owner of this property used that part of the property as a dump. That's why we call it the refrigerator. But what it is is a, it's a high liner stand, 22 feet to the, uh, to either, I think we're, where the feet are. I think it's 24 where I'm sitting. And I'm in a, a double white oak right on the edge of the water. And there's a major deer corridor travel zone just to the south of me, about 15 yards. And I'm right up tight to the water, and I'm on the west end of all this hinge cutting area, if people can see this. So I utilize water as a pinch. And I'm, I'm up tight against that water, trying to catch a buck, going up and down that corridor, either going from the west to the east or the east to the west because you never quite know they tailwind that deer was mm-hmm. tailwinding that day and his goal was to get downwind of that bedding area he was heading into that doe bedding area you yep. searching for does and i just happened to be there and again it was first time in it was gosh maybe maybe 10 yards was the shot it was very close yeah and the same thing he didn't go 40 yards and it was great you talked about how you used trail camera data from the year before And when we were out walking around, you showed us a handful of spots where you usually get good pictures during the year, and you had some cameras out right now monitoring some summer activity and stuff. Can you just walk us through your trail camera um, strategy, basically how you managed to do that without screwing things up? Yep, because I think most of us who's ever gotten trail cameras and had a good deer to chase have probably broken all the right laws that we know we shouldn't do, and that is we check them too often. We don't pay attention to our scent like we think we should. We're still getting pictures of deer, so it can't be bothering them, right? And if you want to learn a lot about your deer, just put your camera on video mode. Mm. Yeah. And see how they react once they see that camera. 
you know, teach an awful lot. I don't know if you've ever done that or not. You know, I, I never use video mode on mine. I really should. And, and you will find mature bucks doing things you cannot believe. Yeah. And, and, and along with those, yeah. So, uh, but what I do is I have two scrapes that are easy to get to that I, have, I do not hunt around, but I can drive my cart right to it. And so I use those scrapes to monitor because I've found over the years these two scrapes. One's over on the east end of the property. The other one was right in the core of my habitat in a little food plot. If I can monitor mature buck movement on those scrapes, because that's all I'm concerned about, you know. Some people just want to get pictures of deer. Well, that doesn't matter to me during the rut. And I'm not going to have one game camera anywhere where I'm hunting. And the reason is, I, you know, I don't care if it's a cell cam. I don't care how you get the data into your phone or in your computer. If it's made out of plastic and has batteries in it, deer are going to smell it. we got to give them that kind of credit. Right. Right? Yeah, sure. And I just think now that cameras have been used for pretty much 20 years. Yeah, right? been a while now. Probably a lot of deer that snow that a box on a tree is not good news. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm really starting to believe that. You know, just like when tree stands first were legal in Michigan, it was easy. And now everything looks up. Now they're looking right? up, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I, I think there's accumulation going yeah. on there. So you're yeah. going in there on the cart, grabbing those cards without spooking anything, getting out of there. Yeah. And, and trying to do it at noon. I do it at noon on Saturdays. I mean, you pick the day, but for me, that's a day I'm home usually in the mm-hmm. fall. Okay. My thought process is I'm monitoring those cards all through the month of October. Number one, I want to make sure Brutus or Wrighty or whoever I've got is actively using the farm and hitting scrapes. And he's here. So I know he's here. Now I'm seeing when he's here. And you literally see him go from 2 a.m. to 4 a.m. to 5.30 to 6.30. Now he's there at 7 a.m. and it's daylight. Yeah. So now he's moving during daylight. So once I get that information, then I'm waiting for all those other factors. Then I hunt. So what happens if you get a daylight picture or series of daylight pictures outside of that prime time so let's say you get a for whatever reason october 15th all of a sudden brutus is walking in daylight in that area do you throw all the other things out of the table and say i gotta hunt tomorrow or no. do you think it's an anomaly and it's not gonna now, happen again for myself everything is set up for that prime time so i won't hunt i may hunt a non-rut area say i know for sure he just went to or came from a food plot edge i say man he's up moving it's crazy he shouldn't be moving mm-hmm. but i'm gonna hunt that tomorrow night okay because you might kill him. I mean, you really yeah. kid. Yeah. yeah. It, it does happen. So you're just not you're not going to go into your very but best spots. But I'm not going to go into my best spots until it's the right time of the year. Okay. Okay. Josh, what were some of the other things you were thinking about when you were walking out there? Yeah. Questions you had? I just want to back up real quick, talking about the refrigerator stand. Can you explain the um, the wires that you had mm. uh, strung up there oh, across yeah. the trail? And you had the... um, it's, it's an area where there's, uh, as much as I have early succession, this is an area that I don't have bedding going on. So I have some larger mature trees, as mm-hmm. you saw. So I didn't have any small trees to create licking branches. So I ran two straight, just just plain wire, I guess just fence wire, between two trees about five yards apart, probably starting at about six feet to seven feet. And then I used uh, plastic electrical zip ties and tied four or five limbs and trimmed them all so they would be about shoulder high. And you could see it was about 25 yards out in front of my stand, and it was right over a deer corridor. And so all the bucks coming and going stop right there and use that licking branch. So it's a great place to shoot. Yeah, Yeah, you have many, many, I mean, so many scrapes on your property. 
and we I think it was maybe further that asked you what what percentage of those scrapes were man-made versus natural made um number one how many scrapes do you think are out there and number two can you talk through all the different things you do as far as how you create or manipulate scrapes licking yeah. branches all that stuff yeah. and why uh first question how many scrapes out there did i manipulate probably 80 percent okay uh What's the easiest way to do it? You've got a uh, you've got a three inch diameter cherry right on a trail, and it's got four or five limbs on it. But the limbs start three feet from the ground, and they end up you know ten feet. You can take a piece of parachute cord or wire and pull that limb down to the base of the tree to get that limb about shoulder high. And I trim it with with clippers so that it's right there, chewed off, just like anything you see they do naturally. And then I take a rake, and I rake about a three-foot area underneath it. If there's grass and vegetation, I actually take the time and use Roundup and kill everything. Come back a couple of weeks later, rake it all up. And I, I never use any scent or anything. I just go right down one. And as soon as one deer uses it, they all use it. So um, there's a lot of different ways you can do it. Uh, I talked about the wire. Uh, pulling down a limb is the easiest. Um, I think... Lots of scrapes in areas where bucks are transitioning and where their food is and where their bedding is keeps them busy. And especially as we get closer and closer to the rut, I believe there's a lot more communication and competition amongst bucks than we give them credit. I mean, there's something magical going on with this scrape. I mean, a buck dispenses scent on it and another buck does and pretty soon you get does on it. And all the good deer biologists will tell you that the does are priming that estrus back and forth. There's, that, there's a chemical communication going on. So I think the more of that I have within bow range of my stand, the better chance I have of getting a shot of that shooter. Yeah. Do, do, is there any uh, – do, does that apply to field edges versus back in the cover? Or is what kind of thoughts do you have around the location of this? Um, field edge scrapes are pretty much – I mean, all of us have probably watched a buck work a field edge scrape. It's kind of random. Uh, no real predictability to it. Uh, if he's there, he's going to use it. Most of the time, especially, say, your ag fields, farmer's got a 40-acre bean field, and you walk down that one fence row and you see six big old scrapes, mm -hmm. and they're nice ones. And yep. Probably 90% of that use is after dark. Yep. Just because it, it's a field edge, and it's, it's open, and they don't like to be in the open. But those in the cover, especially that transition, and you saw a number of those transition scrapes I yeah. did, where I'm going from really good hinging to a, a fairly somewhat open hardwoods right back into really thick cover again where I have these micro food plots. So those bucks feel real comfortable coming in and staging, moving around. They're not in the open by any degree. And so they're going to work those scrapes and do their thing and communicate with their buddies and go rub some big popple and cherry trees and show off. And yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of them yeah, uh, yeah a lot. So, so it seems like a lot but i mean that's where habitat really comes in if you don't have early succession to get the trees that you can ultimately have mock scrapes growing okay naturally yeah and get the cover they feel safe standing in during daylight that's what we're trying to do we're trying to kill these deer when it's daylight yeah and they're just nervous creatures that prefer nighttime yeah so you've hunted big mature deer in michigan they don't show themselves very often. No. They far, really don't. Far less than I wish they far would. Far less than we'd all <laughs> wish, you know. Um, you know, I think one of the things with scrapes, 
a lot of beginner hunters and I was the same way at first you thought, Oh, if there's a scrape, I should, that's where I should hang my tree stand. It was like this yeah. visual mm-hmm. sign that said, Hey, there was a buck here. That seemed like a great place to hang your stand. It seems like as I'm looking at the way you're approaching things, you're hanging your stands place in places based off of habitat features and how deer will utilize those. And then you're making sure there are scrapes near that best spot. Yep. So as to either slow them down once they pass through or maybe encourage a little bit of extra movement in the area around that's, the activity you said. That's it. Is that yeah. right? Yep. That, that's a good way of, of saying it because I build the features first. Th- that's the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Can I get into it, not be seen, not be heard, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, successfully get there? Is there, Now, is there enough reason f- to keep deer constantly moving? You know, is there bedding areas? Is there food? Are, are there all these other reasons? No scrapes are just the extra element. Yeah. Now I've got some scrapes in there. If young bucks are in there working those scrapes and then an older mature deer comes in there, he's got to come in there and dispense his scent too because, you know, he's he's big man in, in charge and he's got to show off and, and they're going to duck right out of there yeah. pretty quick anyways. And I think this is a good thing to even think about even if you aren't in an area that you can manipulate habitat. Even if you can't create these features, find those features and then then create some mock scrapes yeah. or something to sweeten the pot a yeah. little bit. But again, I would I at least the way I typically look at it, unless you find one of these areas where there's almost like what you've created, where you're back in cover, where all the features are right, and then you see this natural cluster of scrapes all over, then that's like then that's your blinking red light that we've mm-hmm. got all these things coming together. Yeah. That, yep. that sometimes you them. walk onto a property and it's just there. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it sometimes it's just everything's right it's naturally thick topography's right there's a cluster of scrapes there's good food all a guy's got to do is go in there and hang yeah but most of the time we don't Doesn't get go that, that well. here no <laughs> you, you talked about um you mentioned access that we talked about access a decent bit but as we walked through your property we saw a lot of different ways that you implement smart access routes or exit routes from your stands to make sure that you can utilize this property that's jam-packed with great deer habitat but you're still able to hunt it in a way that doesn't overpressure those deer can you talk about the different ways you've gone about improving or thinking through access routes yeah i can um we didn't stop and talk but you saw a lot of my natural spruce tree lines mm-hmm. so I, I grew i planted a lot of norway spruce 30 years ago in a line so i could walk right along beside them in a mowed path quietly to get me to an area I wanted to hunt. Now, normally those stop before I get to that stand. And then from that point on, I'm hinging or growing a lower cover. And I'm very disciplined about mowing that path to my stand, spraying it with Roundup in late August, just prior to when they go hard antler, so that when it does come the right day to hunt that, I have pretty quiet, easy access, and I've been guilty of going out at 11 o'clock at night, two nights before I plan to hunt a stand with a leaf blower and blowing that path clean. Really? Yes. <laughs> and before leaf blowers, I did it with a hand rake. And that's a, there's a lot of guys that used to read about this 20 years ago. I always wonder about this. Because the leaf drop takes place right yeah, during right. our prime time. Right. And sometimes we're going into areas where there's going to be deer, and it's tough. So I always, I'm faced with this dilemma too. I was like, what's worse? Is it the sound when I walk in, you know? And so in a situation like that during the rut, I would try to go in super duper early and make sure I'm not going through an area where there's going to be deer feeding or something, maybe in, you know, two hours before daylight or something, but I'm making noise walking in there. So what's worse, walking in there and making noise or going, like you said, in the middle of the night or a rainy day or something like that and 
making that, you know, raking and everything. I don't know, but then you're leaving you're leaving footprint scent or all those different things when you're doing that. It's like this balancing act that's It is. Very it's a balancing act. Tricky. And so I, I typically uh prior to the leaf blower and it was a rake, it was always in the rain. I would literally go out in the rain. Now I was wearing clothing that was as scent controlled as I could be. And I would rake in the rain. And actually it's good because the leaves are wet and instead of them just scattering, they just kinda of go off to the right. side. Yep. And so it works real good. You can just make yourself a nice little 10, 12-inch wide path, and you can get right to yep. it. And then when I use the leaf blower, but it still is under generally those conditions. It's a, a lot of times we get that cold front, and I'm waiting for a day or two after that major cold front for the high pressure to come up. So, again, I'm in good scent-free boots and that sort of thing, but I'm using the leaf blower. This is the right time of the year. At that time of the year, those deer are not in those bedding areas. Hmm. I can get in there at 11 o'clock at night and pretty much never run into a deer. I'm going to run into them going by the food plots. Right. That's where I'm going to run into them. Yeah. Do you think that utilizing a leaf blower, which sounds like a big machine, Mm -hmm. makes them less scared even if you did bump deer because it sounds like some kind of machinery or something? They they hear you coming way before you get there. And then they hear you with the sun. I think, it, yeah, I, I think you're not surprising them. Just I think the like, worst is the guy sneaking in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. Just yeah, like they're not as spooked by a truck or yeah. farmer's tractor driving right. through the field yep. or something. I wonder yep. if that's what's going on there, too. It's interesting. So, you know, I, I use uh, Cave and Rock switchgrass in my warm season plantings as a screen. I, I can utilize to that. You saw where I can use that to my favor, getting yep. into certain places. Hinge cutting low as a screen, growing conifers in a line, and then a miscanthus grass as well. So there's a, And there's also sorghum. There's a lot of different things we can do with a little bit of time to have a really good screen by this fall if we just plan for it right now. Can you talk about miscanthus grass? Because I don't think I've had anyone on the show who's talked about using that before. Okay, so, so miscanthus grass is a perennial, almost a reed grass. It's an ornamental grass, but that particular grass is uh, sterile. It does not... It's not invasive, even though it has a flower top. It doesn't spread by seed. It, it has rhizomes, which is kind of like a long bulb. So you plant those about two inches deep, and in two to three years, you're going to end up with a cluster of 15 to 30, pretty much not quite as big as your thumb, but about at the base and 10 to 12 feet tall with a little flower head on it and, and a few leaves. And in a and if you plant them on like 12 to 18 inch centers and do two rows of them, you literally will have a wall deer can't see through and neither can you. So if you plan ahead for anything and, and especially some open hill country I've been in, a lot of my clients have planted it, have had great luck with it. And there's a Hillsdale County farm I was on just a couple of weeks ago. And when I was there five years ago, I mentioned that I'd recommend do that. He got a hold of somebody, got it planted and it's, just changed his access wow. because he's got a cabin on a hill and a lot of open ground and that stuff's 12 feet tall and he can walk right by a food plot and he's got a hinge cutting 20 yards in the woods he's on the other side of the grass he can get by that hinge cutting and it's not like the deer don't know you're there they just think it's like pheasant hunting you know how yeah. we you walk and then you jump a bird mm-hmm. you know when you were standing there talking and then all of a sudden or you jump a deer when you're right in the grass because yeah. they just felt you weren't going to bump into them so i think screening is really beneficial in getting by deer when you have more deer on your property 
especially when you start doing the kind of habitat work that I've done. Has that know? gained popularity over recent years? It seems like everybody I feel like a lot is, of people have been talking about yeah. it like the last year or two. And, and there's a couple of companies here in Michigan that sell it and provide it, okay? And I know they're very busy and, you know, wasn't that many years ago. Not many guys would order 200 or 300 rhizomes. What are you going to do with that? Oh, it's for deer <laughs> habitat. Now I think that's just all they hear. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they've got their other clients, yeah. but yeah. Speaking of access, <clears throat> you pointed out a handful of spots on the property where you specifically didn't make any habitat improvements and you left it kind of wide open. Mm-hmm. And I've heard this referred to, and I've kind of referred to it as like a deer desert. It's like yeah. having a portion on your property that's not attractive. Can you talk about why that's important and how, how that factors into what you're yeah, doing? Yeah, because uh, you saw the places where I've killed writing, where I killed Brutus, and that's everything's right. Edges, early succession. So I expect deer to be bedding there and utilizing them during, all, whether, you know, during non-rut periods and through rut period and in the late season. The, these, are, these are the best five-star hotels I've been able to build for them. If I have an area that I've done nothing and it's a deer desert and there's very little, if any, early successional growth and it's a wide open woods, deer do not really want to spend time there. And why would they if they've got such a great place 100 yards away to spend time? Mm-hmm. So I, I use those open woods as, as access to move through, say you want to get into somewhere half an hour or an hour before daylight. I can walk through there and pretty much not, I'm not going to run into a bedded deer. Yeah. So it allows me in. And it's also future places for me to work. When that great bedding area I showed you where I killed Brutus, over time that's going to degrade. Trees are going to get big. They're going to start maturing. So I'm just going to shift over and do another spot and duplicate it, and the deer will move over. Hmm. And then three or four years later, I'll go back and refine that other one. Then I'll have a – you saw that corridor going down the edge? Yep. Then I'll maintain that center corridor, and then I'll just have two really cool places. So uh, there's always a plan in what I'm trying to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very – everything is thought through. And I think that for – there's a lot of different people that talk about habitat work. There's a lot of people that try doing different things with their habitat. It's all cool. It's all fun. It, it can all make a difference, but what I'm always most fascinated by and what I'm always most impressed by are those that can really have this very strategic view of it. You don't do anything by accident. Nothing is being put here just because it's easiest to put it there. Right. Um, I think if you're going to make improvements that benefit your deer herd, but you're also a deer hunter, you might as well put them in and strategically place them and create them in a way that's going to help your hunting best. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's definitely happening on this yeah, property. Big time. Um, first, what do you got? Can can we talk a second? You know, we talked a little bit about out there about how um, you tend to get more deer into your property at certain times of the year just based on the habitat that's around. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, we were just talking about the deer deserts, maybe a little bit how that, how you have used the properties around you to um, help stack the stack the deck in your favor during those times and utilize what they're doing to, to benefit you. If that makes. No, no, I I think I know where you're, where where you're going with this because I do have neighbors, other properties that people are not doing anything other than some row crops, whether that be beans or corn, but around here, it seems like it's more beans as seldom as there corn grown around Mm. here. It's, it's beans, wheat, uh, that type of thing. But, uh, 
when you have everything, and I talk about the magic triangle. You've heard me two years ago I told you about that, mm-hmm. and that is abundant food, water, and cover all closely associated to each other. So that really stands out here now that you've had a chance to walk it. And oh, yeah. Of course, we had a little more water than normal because of all this rain we've had. But everything they need is right there. So you take the uh, not the best properties, but they're holding some deer, and they've got some ag fields. And then there's a few bow hunters that hunt that property. Now gun season starts. So now, you know, not only the landowner, but his cousin and his nephews and their three friends and hey, they're they're gun hunters. They're not bow hunters. So they drive their trucks and they slam their doors and they hunt the same stand. You know, I'm going to my stand, right? Yep. You know, I mean, everybody knows about that. They go to my stand. And I think what happens is the pressure builds. Um, there isn't the quality of cover. So these deer see people entering and exiting woodlots more than they were seeing them. So the deer that are aware of this property and the food sources just move in to get away from it. And so now they're coming in, There's and there's lots of room. And it's not uncommon by Thanksgiving for me to have three times a deer here in Thanksgiving as there is right now. Wow. It's pretty typical. By December, when we get into muzzleloader season and later, the, it, the large food plot in the back that's all secluded, I've seen 40, 50 deer in there in one night. So, so There how, are not that many deer here right, right now. They're just not here. But they're there then. So... So how do you change your um, maybe access or approach when you have that many more deer on your place? Because so, you're going to be more likely yeah. to bump them as you get in. So how do you change So your... once we get through that, say, November 18th, we're in the third day of gun season. I don't gun hunt that much. I do a little bit. Um, I, I try to monitor, especially if I've got a mature deer, make sure he's around, see what he's up mm-hmm. to. If he's still on my list and fits my criteria... I might think about taking him, but but other than that. So as these deer start piling in, I have to be a lot more careful. Yeah. Really careful. So typically, once we've gotten to uh, November 18th, I've just about quit. I mean, I will not hunt any mornings. From that point on, I'm done hunting mornings because I've got a lot more deer, and they're distributed in not only the bedding areas, but they're hitting the food sources harder. We're starting to get colder weather. We're getting some snow on the ground by first week of December usually. So now I've got does 30, 40 yards from those food plots. So at that point, it's strictly an afternoon hunt under ideal conditions, which is, again, a northwest wind. And I I pretty much focus all of my late season hunting on afternoons and a northwest wind. And on that food. On that food, yeah, and it's all about food. And I've had really good luck with mature deer coming in on that food. We talked a good bit about your food plot strategy last time, but I think we, we shouldn't completely ignore it this time. Could you walk us through how your food plot setup looks right now? And it, and it probably is a little bit different than it was back then, too. So could you walk us through how much food you have, how it's placed, what um, you do? I put in a total of about seven and a half to eight acres of destination food. Uh, warm season Roundup Ready soybeans. Um, I will uh, rotate occasionally into chicory and clover perennial. And then a lot of small little, tiny little no-till or just micro food plots. And some of those were underwater. I did show you the one, the one small one. Yep. Um, I really like Roundup Ready soybeans just because it's a lot of food right out of the gate. 
and you know two weeks old they're four inches tall and, and it's food for deer and and they can take a lot of browse pressure and it allows me the opportunity to come back later in the season and overseed it with a variety of different cool season annuals and you're doing that when mid-august okay depending on the season you know uh, really, I mean, look at last year. We had the worst drought we've seen in years in this part of Michigan from August all the way through October. We just mm-hmm. got hardly any rain. So I'm really watching the weather whenever the weather is. I've also got a few food plots that I till and disc and really make nice that I specifically plant the uh, groundhog radishes, purple top turnips. That's not an overseed. I'm really doing a super good job. for That's, that's for late winter feeding. And, uh, you know, Crimson clover is part of that mix. Crimson clover is very high in sugar during the seeking phase of the rut and also use uh, winter wheat and winter rye. So it's, it's a, I'm a big believer in diversity in food. So it's not all one, but probably, like I said, around seven to eight acres of Roundup Ready soybeans that are overseeded and then a lot of small micro plots in the cover. And you saw some of my small. Mm-hmm. You saw the one I referred to as the buck plot. Yeah. Totally surrounded with conifer trees a lot of action there uh it doesn't grow a lot of food but it keeps a lot of activity there yeah those are in it a lot of bucks in and out of there yeah one thing i noticed with with any one of your food plots all of your food it it feels safe for a deer it's yeah. it's all secluded yep. there's yep. nothing like out in the wide open where deer really feels exposed i think it, it, almost any one of those areas you could almost shoot a bow across some of those spots, almost all yep. of them. Yep. Um, so they're always relatively tight. I mean, your main destination food sources, if we're imagining that rectangle of cover again, and that's not exactly what it looks like, but then you've got that destination food on the west side of the rectangle and destination on the south side of the rectangle. I mean, those are th- those are thin, long food sources. Yes, kind they of. are. Yep, kind of. Um, yep. And then you 25, even... 25, 30 yards across, most of them. Yeah. And then you even broke it up with a piece of cover in the middle of them, too. Yeah. Can you talk about what you yeah. did there on those? Yeah. That sorghum? Yep, I uh, I utilize sorghum to do two things: uh, reduce the sight distance of the deer, so deer on one side can't see to the other side of the field, and vice versa. Because if a buck walks out from a, a secure area and looks into a large food plot that he can see 200 yards, oh, don't see any does, don't need to go there. Well, if he can't see, and they use their eyes a lot, you, you, that's why decoying works so well at that time mm-hmm. of the year. So I, I, I run a finger of sorghum, which will be about 8 to 10 feet tall, probably 10 yards wide, and that blocks their vision. Well, I leave a small gap at the end of that sorghum, and that's where I have my ground blind. And so if those deer need to walk around and look to the other end, or deer from that opposite end decide to move up more closer to that hinge cutting and see what's going on, they've got to walk through that gap. Yep. And that gap really works good. So compartmentalization, if you can think... Even though I have a 1,400-foot-long food plot, there's few places you can see more than about 60, 70 yards in it because of the either topography or what I plant to break it up. And I use a lot of sorghum to break it up. Yeah, I've, I've used some of that kind of an idea on some of my food plots as well to a, to a lesser degree. But even in that, you know, in a smaller situation, you can see how you can get a lot more deer activity in a small area when you when you break yeah. it up like that yeah. because I think it reduces the stress level too on deer when I don't feel like they're surrounded by so right. many other deer. And, and it's uh, a safety thing too. Like You know, uh, a handful of uh, clients that contact me are just new into food plotting. So the first thing they do is they've got a little corner 
of a large cornfield, and the farmer's not planting that anymore. So they've got this little half acre, and, and regardless of what they're planting, and they find out right away that even though there's three sides of cover, it's wide open. The farmer came in there last week, cut the corn. Now the deer that walk into that little tiny food plot can see for 200 yards. Mm-hmm. Everything's changed. The deer aren't in there anymore. Yeah. Where if he'd have put a wall of sorghum in there, and, it, and that kind of gives a coliseum effect. Okay, mm-hmm. The deer walk out. They can't see out towards that corn. Now they're moving during daylight. And you know, like you say, they feel protected, secure. Yep. And yep. it's uh, it just makes so much sense. you got to think like a deer. You know, he wants to be, he or she wants to be one jump from security no matter where they're at. Yeah. Do, do you think, do you think since the last time we chatted about this stuff, that has your has your mind changed? Has the way you view your habitat work changed? Have you made any significant changes actually on the ground in the last two years? Has there been any evolution in the way you think um, through or, or execute on these things? I, I'm I'm constantly evolving in. I, I think this network of trails and openings and how I treat those networks of trails and openings is constantly moving. I'm I'm putting more food in those trails overseeded clover and and chicory and then i'm coming back and feeding that with the best fertilizer i can feed it Mm. because i want those deer to be so programmed into going up and down this corridor system and utilizing this area of bedding which means it's going to be one of the first one or two places that mature buck's going to look so i I, i'm just trying to get there And, and i think the uh the adequate number of scrapes in cover versus scrapes near stands where you're hunting. Okay, you'll see anywhere my stands are located, I got a lot of scrapes. Yeah. Because, and, and it's not like I'm over the top of a scrape, but there's multiple scrapes and, you know, 40, 50 yards away. They're always around that stand. Yep. But I do have a few scrapes in every one of the areas that the bucks are bedding and searching because it is a communication method. And you want him going in there and working on that communicating with the does and the other bucks yeah it, it's a it's really interesting seeing that out there yeah. that was something that i that stood up to me too i was i was interested in in how that kind of plays out during your hunts too and it sounds like from some of the stories you're told that they're definitely utilizing those and yeah there's there's we talked about this when we were out there the 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 risk or one risk that people bring up when it comes to like making all these mock scrapes is that there could be the concern of if you have so many mock scrapes and if your if your thought process is that having all these mock scrapes will cause these deer to slow down their movement because they're going to hit more and more of these that it could keep deer from getting to wherever you might be during daylight but it seems like you're making sure that most all of your hunting locations are within the cover again it's i i think that term preference okay think about where you can get to hunt and it should be it should be accessible to some of your better sweetened areas that's where you want to have the preference of scraping and rubbing going on. Yep. And, and a number of years ago, I kind of termed it a socialization area because there is, there's a lot going on. You know, some buck scrape, some rub, some just walk through and scent check it. Okay, maybe your more mature bucks especially. They may not walk up to that scrape, but they're 10 yards downwind, 20 yards downwind, just keeping track of who was there. They're so in tune with things that we don't get. Oh, yeah. Okay, they just are. It's always, it's always just, you can think you've got it all figured out, and then they, they humble me beyond belief. They really do. You know, the moment you think you got it, 
and and why they disappear uh, one year, two years. Uh, some are homeboys, some roam. Uh, there's been some incredible articles written by uh, QDMA with the collaring and tracking, what they call buck excursions and mm-hmm. doe excursions. Really uh, interesting stuff. Some deer never leave a fairly small home range. Some are all over the place. Uh, anybody who owns, I don't care if you own 20 acres or 200, if you're into it and you're a camera guy, you're going to identify that one that covers a lot of ground and that one that hardly leaves. Yeah. yeah. Unique personalities. Yeah. Makes it yeah. fun. <laughs> it sure does. Speaking of unique personalities, further. <laughs> do you... Do you <laughs> do you have any other? Do you have any other questions here? Uh, I don't know about questions. I it just got to be incredibly rewarding to go out there and do all that work, and then see it come to fruition how you would would have hoped it to. Yeah, you know, like just thinking about the one uh, hinge cut area in the back, where like there was never this trail here before, and then yeah. you hinge cut all this area, and right on that edge, there's just a highway going yeah. through there now. I mean, this just got to be so cool to see. The plan come together. You know, it's it's an overused term. Uh, started out in the food plot industry. It's used a lot by habitat guys now. You know, build it and they will come. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing more fun than killing a deer in a spot where you cut those trees, created that trail, went in there during 95-degree August weather with a walk-behind brush hog, sweated your tail off, did all this work, you know, and then you go, you know, everything's right. You wait for the right condition. The deer shows up. You make the shot. You know, and between the three of us, we all know it's not easy. That is, when those conditions meet, we're tested. And if something can go wrong, uh, man, have I missed some deer. (laughs) Very close range. It happens. And I bet you have too. Yeah, unfortunately I have. (laughs) But when all those things do work, it's very rewarding. I mean, I just love doing it. And and I love helping clients. You know, I, I work with a lot of different clients, and they see my passion when I walk a property that has so much potential. And, and they've just scraped the surface enough to know that it can work and to lay out a plan for them and say, you know, I know you probably won't do 50% of this, but if you can do 50% of this where you'll be five years from now, you have no idea what you'll be hunting five years from now Yeah. if you can just follow this plan. Yeah, you know what it was, what was really cool? Something I noticed when we were walking around, and I'm sure you've walked around this property weeks and weeks and weeks of your life i mean like so much time you spent on this property looking at these same things <clears throat> but we're out there and you are just cheesing huge smile on your face oh, I'm just so excited it. i am and looking at us like how cool is this like your enthusiasm yeah. your excitement yeah. like your joy that you get yeah. out of this is is, is. so cool i um, really i really wish uh all of the everybody that's hearing this would understand what is in their control and how great hunting they could have yeah. if they just decided to get out there and do it so for those people who because because you just mentioned like you do a lot of consulting you go you walk properties with people there's so many people i think who hear all this kind of stuff and they think ah it's it's above my pay grade that sounds too complicated or i I can't afford to have someone come in or whatever like how do you how do you um begin this process so if i'm my name i've got a new property let's say how do we begin that analysis of, like, where do we start? So, what are the things you think about? So uh, I'll just tell you, you know, uh, I get an email or I get a phone call. And, hey, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm so-and-so, and I've got 45 acres, and it's in uh, Hillsdale County. Okay, and it's uh, – so right away, I, how long have you owned it? 
okay because I really like people that have got at least one or two years of hunting experience because they know a little bit about the deer movement, a little bit about what's going on with the neighbors. Not that there's anything wrong with a brand new landowner calling and wanting to get right going, but it helps. So how long have you owned it? How much is tillable? How much is wetland? How much is woods? And start getting that dialogue. And then, well, what's the address? Well, we're on the phone. I'm on my computer looking it up on Google Earth. And usually five minutes in the phone conversation, I'm looking at his property now. So now I'm saying, oh, yeah, I noticed that big ridge on the northwest corner right there. That's a pretty neat little pinch point. And sometimes they know about it and sometimes they don't. Mm-hmm. So we start a good dialogue. I want to see the, I want to look at the property, understand where it's at. Maybe I know something about that area. Maybe there's a, a neighborhood co-op in the area. Uh, maybe I've scored some really cool deer. I'm also a scorer for Commemorative Bucks of Michigan. So I get to see some pretty neat deer that come through the area. And ultimately, you know, he says, well, I, you know, the reason I've contacted you, I want some help. So we go over the pricing structure, you know, so I, I have, I've tried really hard to keep it affordable. So I have a, a minimum half day rate and a full day rate because, you know, a business is business and you're going to, it's going to sink so much money into my time, whether I spend an hour or four hours. Sure. So we go over the, the numbers and how that's charged and what they're going to get. And the one thing I try to give all my clients is knowledge. Because I'm, I throw so much. I mean, you saw what I did with you. Imagine that was your property, and I was walking, and we were still out yeah. there. And I'm showing you where they're bedding and where they're, how they're feeding here, and they're not feeding here, and the great stand location you could have here if you did X, Y, and Z. So I leave a CD full of 30 years of little three and four and five page how-to articles with all kinds of photographs, and here's what you do, and here's how you do it. Some are hand sketches, some are screenshot videos, a variety of different types of information plan identification, early successional growth, how you hinge cut, video links to how you do a barrier cut versus a bedding cut, lots of data. And at the end of that day, I've seen the property. We usually flag stand locations, bedding areas, potential food plot locations. I write him a list. Here's what you're going to focus on for the next three years. And I'm going to take a satellite photo with me, and I'm going to draw on that. Say, here, you know, here's your rut stand, here's your food plot, Here's where your bedding areas are. This is the deer corridor you're going to work on. And I give that person enough work to keep them just crazy busy for three or four years. Enough but that's really how the process piss starts. off his wife. <laughs> oh. <laughs> right? Yep, yep. Be gone yep. for some weekends, honey. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and so there, I'm always accessible. People can email me, text me, call me. Um, you know, if I'm busy with clients, yeah, I, I respect the client's time, but I will follow up, call, send an email. And so I... I talk to a lot of people at this time of year. Yeah, you know, it's got to be a lot of fun. Yeah. I, but, I get a kick yeah. out of just doing it on my own my own chunk of dirt, but I can see how much fun it is to help other people too. Oh, it's just, yeah, very fulfilling. Yeah. And what's really cool is the, you know, you meet the people that you can tell when you leave, they get it. They're into it. They're committed. They understand. Uh, they know about scent control. They understand wind and conditions. They know they're in a tough hunting state. They mm-hmm. know about their neighbors, but they get it. And they start implementing that. And usually two to three years, in that two or three years, I'll get photographs and emails of the best deer they ever saw, best deer, maybe the daughter killed, son, maybe he killed it, whoever it is. They finally got there, you know. And then the best part is what happens four and five years later because they now become very consistent deer harvesters of whether it's the does they want to kill to maintain their population to the mature buck that they had targeted that one of them was lucky enough to get a crack yeah. at. 
And then the pictures with their hinge cuts and the screening. That I mean, it's just so neat. The Seeing information it all come together. So yeah, yeah I, I really do enjoy it. It's very fulfilling. Okay. For a new person to Habitat work, what would be the two? If you had, if you, if we had like two people in front of us, one was brand new to this kind of stuff, and one had been doing Habitat work for a long, long time, and you wanted to leave each of them with two like final insights. Like I really want every new person to Habitat work to make sure to understand these two things or not make these two mistakes however you want to do it and then for the the guy who's been doing it a long time what would those two most impactful things you could leave them with be for the newbie and the long time for the newbie how important his soil quality is to everything that grows on that property early successional growth and food plot success newbies typically start out with food plots and so it's really tough to grow something in sand, pretty easy to grow things in loam and that type of stuff. Mm -hmm. Clay is the other side of sand. You know, it's snotty and stays wet but dries out and, you know, turns into rock and all that sort of stuff. So he, the more you know how important soil quality is, the more successful you'll be from, from a newbie because okay. he's it's going to take him a while to do a timber harvest or, or whatever he's doing, ultimately ending up hinge cutting. But his growth is dependent on that soil. For the experienced guy, he and it, for, to any experienced person, sunlight is everything. Shaded woodses are great for squirrels and woodpeckers and raccoons, but don't do a lot for your deer habitat. It took me a long time to understand what an 85% cut was. Yeah, And that's not every place, but in strategic locations, it can mean everything. An edge. Those are so, one each. Give me one more for each now. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get my what I, what I bargained for here. So one more newbie tip, one more expert tip. Uh, this is good stuff. One more newbie tip. Don't be afraid to make your entry and exit clean and quiet. Okay. Focus on that Because you're only going to have a few places to hunt. So get in and get out clean and quiet. For yeah. the experienced guy... Think cover. Focus on cover before cover is other king. stuff sometimes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, to your point, food plots often are the sexy thing that everyone wants to talk oh, about yeah. and everyone gets excited about, but cover can really. And, and again, food plots a vital part of my management strategy. But if I, something happened and, and similar to last year, terrible drought, no rain, didn't grow near the food, I really focused on what I could do in cover. And it made up for it. Yeah. Still killed a <laughs> Still killed great a buck. Deer. Yeah. yeah. Well, and yep. you just have such an incredible amount of food even in the cover. Right. Yeah. Right? I mean, yep. you would probably be okay without. Yeah. I have a picture that I show everybody. Uh, I, I put a really neat camouflage binder together with the CD, and I print about 40 or 50 sheets off, which are kind of like focus, okay? Here's what. Yeah. So I show a picture of a property in Hillsdale County. And it is a park effect woods. And you can see all the way through it. And on the other side of it, you can see there's an open field. And then I've got a close-up of his soybean field. And his soybeans are about three inches tall and nipped right off like you went in there with a weed eater. Then I, also, then I show you a picture of my hinge cutting, what it looks like when it's growing. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, if, you, if the deer are in the, what they think are cover, which is that park effect woods, and there's absolutely no food, then the food you're growing, the deer are going to destroy now imagine being able to grow the cover and the succession that I do. 
now my food plots are going to be twice as successful because there's less pressure on them. That's a great yeah. point. Yeah. And I think a lot of people miss that. Yeah. The, it's a... Uh, I mean, it, it's all connected, it's connected. You know, it really is. It's very connected. Yeah. You can't do great on one without the other. Yeah. So yeah. it's, uh, you know, it's all, it's all, it's a big circle is mm-hmm. really where you're ending up. You know, yeah. you start one place, you end up right back again. Yeah. That makes it pretty fun. <laughs> Any final thoughts, Josh, that you want to wrap up with? I just want to say thank you for having oh, us out. Oh, and, oh you're welcome. You know, I, I enjoyed having yeah, you. Yeah, really appreciate it. And, you know, we had a chance to meet what, at QDMA's Deer Steward 2 last yep. year. And so yep. it's been just about a year that I've had, had yeah, the opportunity really to know had you. Yeah, chance and, to know you. And, I, and yeah. again, I want to say congratulations on being the Region 3 uh, director. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Awesome. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate yeah. the help you've provided, oh. you know, throughout that time. Yeah. You've been a, a really well, great asset. So. Uh, Furter. Do you want to take advantage of this opportunity to plug anything for QDMA? Or I know you've been trying to get some branches up and running where people haven't been stepping up for leadership positions yet. Do you want to throw that out there to see if there's anyone interested? Or? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's definitely areas. Um, so so my region, I think we've talked about this before, but it's Michigan, Indiana, and Western Ohio. Um, so if, if there's anybody in those areas that want to get involved, um, in a branch that's already existing, or if maybe there's not a branch that is in that area, you know, please feel free to reach out. Um, we can get you some information. Um, we've got some, some stuff in the works with, with some of these branches that have been inactive, um, in Michigan. I've got a meeting next week with uh, some guys about maybe the Southeast Michigan branch and get that one, um, back up and running. So stay tuned. Hopefully there's some more stuff and, um, coming up in the awesome. near future that, you know, will be, uh, in this area and um i'm looking forward to it oh i was at this uh this event last night the storytelling event for bha and there's a handful of people there who'd been listeners mm-hmm. who had said that they're relatively new deer hunters and they were interested in trying to get tapped into the community like yep. you know so they went to that event and that was cool um but i i pointed them to you i said you gotta talk to Fertz because he can really get you involved with the uh the qdma branches which are such a great yep. local way to connect with yep. other deer hunters yep learn so much i mean uh, the the network of hunters just here in yeah. southern michigan yep. that you know oh, jake and, yeah. and many of your friends are involved yeah. oh, down yeah. here i mean and we're kind of starting to get into that time of year where we're doing some more educational theme stuff um so keep an eye out for that i know you and i yeah, are doing plug a, that yeah we're doing an event um in the grand rapids area with the west central branch june 7th you should know june this man mm-hmm. that is <laughs> june 7th yeah, yeah so yeah. we're gonna do like a kind of a uh, meet and greet, social hour, kind of whitetail Q and A, uh, and Mark is going to be the kind of featured guest there. And you know, if anybody very had, underwhelming yeah, guest yeah, list, yeah. but <laughs> we had to we had to settle for somebody. But um, yeah, if anybody has any questions that they'd like to ask Mark, you know, send them to me, and we'll we'll get them we'll get them uh, in line for that night. And come on out. It's at the Rockford Sportsman's Club. Um, I believe we're starting at six o'clock. That's uh, just in a couple weeks here. So June seventh, Rockford yeah. Sportsman's yeah. Club. In Grand Rapids, Grand basically. Rapids, yep. Yep, what time is it? Grand Rapids, six o'clock, six to nine. Okay. Um, Does it cost anything? Is no, it free or yeah, tech yep, tickets? Yep, there'll be beer, free beer, and some snacks. And wow. I'm um, sold. Yeah, should be it should be a good time. And you know, there's some some other educational events going on. Habitat days coming up with with different branches. Um, you can find all that information on uh, QDMA's website on the calendar. Um, go go through there and, and check out the different events that the branches are hosting and. Um, a lot of good stuff coming up this summer. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Great. Jake, is there anything 
that we haven't touched on yet that is like glaringly like screaming in the back of your mind like we can't end this podcast without talking about X or do you feel like we we've covered some we helpful covered, territory? We, we covered some really good territory. Okay. I, I hope uh, all the listeners gained a little more. If there's listeners that listened two years ago and for the new ones, might seem a little overwhelming, but it's just like everything. It's a step at a time. Yeah, yeah. So, is there anything that you want to talk about, or if people want to learn more from you or get a hold of you? Yeah, from yep. uh, I have a website, uh, HabitatSolutions360.com. Great place to. There's some videos, free videos you can sign up for. Uh, there's a lot of different pieces of information on different pages. Um, there's a contact page if you want to send me an email and reach out to me. Great place to learn and and uh, get more information about what I do and the services I provide. Awesome. Well, like Josh said, thank you so much, Jake. We appreciate you taking so much time to walk us around and show us your place. Really interesting. Very impressive. And then uh, chatting with us here today. We really enjoyed it. It was a good time. I'm uh, very happy to have you guys part of it today as well. Well, and I'm going to go home now and just look at properties and think, how can I figure this out? to buy one of these places (laughs) yeah josh is gonna be putting down down payment soon now after this this is uh it always definitely got me excited too this always seems to i've been lucky enough to get to go on some cool property tours and whenever i get done with them right home to the computer and i'm just looking 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 (laughs) looking so and you know what you're saying they're not making any more of it it's true exactly it's hard to it it doesn't seem like a bad investment it seems like land's always going to be a a good thing to get into. You know, we did it uh, 38 years ago. And at the time, you know, older people uh, that we knew in the family thought we were crazy. But, uh, my gosh, it was the best best decision I ever made. Yeah, I can see, I can yeah. see why. Yeah. Pretty awesome place. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. And that is a wrap. Just a couple quick things before we go. Like me and Josh talked about, got that June 7th event in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Would love to see you. There's more details about that over on Facebook. I just shared a post for it. Speaking of Facebook, I want to give a quick plug for the Wired Hunt social media channels too. I post a whole lot of stuff on there. So if you want to keep up to date on the latest news with what I've got going on, different hunts, different trips, make sure you're following the Wired Hunt Facebook page, the Wired Hunt Instagram account, and the YouTube channel. I've been mentioning this for a while, but you got to get over and subscribe to the YouTube channel because more and more of my time is going to be spent on that. Really going to be prioritizing it this fall, so make sure you're checking out those videos. Some exciting stuff coming up soon on that front. And uh, finally, big thanks to our partners who helped make this all happen. So big thank you to Yeti Coolers, Matthews Archery, Maven Optics, The Whitetail Properties, and Huntera Maps. And of course, thank you to everyone for listening. Thanks for your attention and your time. I appreciate it. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Hey, everybody knows Weber Grills. I've been using Weber Grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood Pellet Grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear 
on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill.